The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyot. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is uh, Shabham Garg, who uh, I know a lot of uh, uh, the Canadian oil mafia are a big fan of. But Shabham, for those who are not familiar with your background, introduce yourself. Who are you? How did you get involved interested in the oil and gas space? And what are you doing now? Yeah, you're great to be here. Uh, my background is in petroleum engineering. Um, did that a uh, few years ago there and uh, then started working in the field. So I realized that uh, in the down cycle that we had, since 2014 onwards, there was a big void in the market where, where the engineering support uh, on a field level was really lost. A lot of expertise was lost in that. So worked in the field, did field operations, production optimization. While I did my field engineering, I would operate every single well, get to really understand what's happening from the wellhead level, get to really understand how the people out there operate, how they work. Did that for a couple of years, a few years, actually. And then uh, when when COVID hit uh, 2020, I'd been investing in oil and gas uh, since 2013. Uh, not not really a great cycle to be, to be involved in, but really learned a lot through that. And uh, just before COVID hit, we were starting to see changes in the supply demand fundamentals uh, of the industry getting ready for a bull cycle. Uh, and then when COVID hit, really went, went full bore all in. And then 2021, uh, things went really, really well in that time frame. So left, left the engineering technical side of things and went full time into investing. I started off as, as just a hobby, sharing information more on the technical side, sharing information, how to value oil and gas companies. And as I started doing that and joined Twitter, I realized, Hey, there's, there's a massive void in the market here where, where people are hungry for this this information. And oil and gas uh, naturally has been a very opaque industry where, where information is hard to find. And even if the information is out there, it's it's really hard to understand unless you have that background. So now I do Sunday sessions two to three times a month, uh, completely free. They're on my website, uh, on Zoom and on YouTube, where I discuss specific companies, their acreage, their their inventory quality. I talk about their well results, what they're doing, their business development plans, uh, and then I do other sessions on global oil and gas macro. I do sessions on technical petroleum engineering topics, uh, et cetera. And through that, have continued to invest in public markets in, in the oil and gas space. My portfolio is 98 to 99% Canadian oil and gas. And then through that, now over the last uh, 6 to 12 months, we've been doing our own non-broker private placements. So putting my money where my mouth is uh, as I get these opportunities, we don't invest in all of them, obviously. 
but the ones where I'm confident in the geology. I have a core group of investors that invest with me. We go into these together. We take larger stakes in in up and coming junior growth companies, especially at a time where they're being valued for for bankruptcy or or as if nobody believes that their growth story is going to go anywhere and that oil is going to be be non-existent tomorrow. So the valuations justify uh, going in and taking bigger stakes here. So that's that's kind of my focus here going forward and continuing the the information sharing and knowledge sharing as well uh, as the year goes on and as the cycle continues. You mentioned um, working in the field and the point that a lot of these these skills have been lost, you know, really from 2014 and on uh, just because there wasn't that much movement or excitement in the space, money flowing in the space. Lay out for the audience uh, what that means when you say uh, it's very technical, that being on the ground is a very unique dynamic, that you have to have a very certain skill set. You know, I think people naturally think about uh, the idea that any industry, you can figure out how it works if you read a couple of books. Uh, but it sounds like there's much more nuance to kind of the uh, logistics side. Yeah, you bet. So so the oil and gas industry and, and commodities in general are such that, yeah, you can get the base level information on, on books. You can go do a degree in it and understand what's happening in a lab setting. You can run all kinds of trials you want, but really the, the oil field is the oil field. There's things out there that you will not understand unless you worked out there. There's, there's different ways of running things. There's things that, that, that change as time goes on. We often used to joke when I used to operate heavy oil wells is that the full moon and the gravity of that would, would affect some of the uh, production on, on some of these wells. So there's things out there that are completely different from what you can do on an Excel model, on any spreadsheet, on any lab test. Yes, we're, we're running things under perfect conditions when we do that. But when we go out in the field, we're talking about wells that are multi thousands of meters underground that are going two, three, five miles laterally into the ground. This is not homogenous reservoirs. Look at any mountain out there. It's not a clean slate, a solid block ever. It's always got these uh, variations and, and deviations. And even when you produce the well, your pipeline might have a bunch of wax in there. You might have a, a buildup of a different kind of material. So when you really go out there, you understand things, uh, how they happen and how the, the field really works. This is not a perfect system. It's more of an art than it is a science. There is science and physics and chemistry that backs it up. But really, when you go out there, there's there's things out there you realize uh, how to operate these and really maximize your operations and also how to how to work with the people out there. They, they understand their things from, from not a technical standpoint, but from a real world standpoint. So now that I'm on the investment side and, and when I do some of these investments, I, I really like to talk to some of the individuals who are operating the wells because they have the full knowledge as to what's happening. They understand the wells better than sometimes the engineers do because they've seen the well 20 years ago did this and then, and then they made this change based on a service rig job and they got extra production and then nobody listens to them for 20 years. But if you just, just lend your ear there, you understand what they're saying. There's ways to optimize fields that uh, will result in way better well performance and overall company performance going forward. So, so not only do I think it's important to have that field experience, but also uh, leverage that from an investment standpoint and really pay attention to what's going on uh, on a real, uh, real world level. So, so actually, so I think that that's an interesting observation. The idea that uh, the optimization of wells has sort of an experience aspect, a qualitative aspect to it. How much of that kind of art versus science plays into that efficiency? optimization question, uh, you know, not that I want to go into the direction of AI, but, you know, presumably as uh, things and as technology gets in quote smarter, uh, maybe some of these nuances can be put into some kind of hard data to 
have less of that experience uh, be a driver of the efficiency? Yeah, there's certainly a place for it. When I was uh, in 2020 and 2021, when we had the, the down cycle, and even from 2014 onwards, really, when you have a lower oil price is when is when some of these optimizations, efficiencies, uh, artificial intelligence, and, and, and automation really come to the forefront because companies are looking to cut costs. They're looking to really optimize their operations with the least amount of people, run the most amount of wells, uh, especially as some of the wells get older. You can't have all these people running around adding to operating costs. So I think a lot of the efficiencies over the last few years have have come to the forefront. Companies in oil and gas are are very notoriously slow in putting these things uh, into operation. They have this, why why fix it if it ain't broke sort of mindset. But the lower oil price really accelerated some of these moves. So we did see efficiencies in terms of the pump jacks and, and operations around that, around the pipelines and around mitigation. Even when you have one incident and you can you can run simulations and models to tell you when your pipeline is going to be corroding or when there could be a possible incident and, and doing a more proactive maintenance schedule rather than a reactive schedule. All of this has a place. So it's all coming in. It's all adding to operating cost efficiencies, especially in today's world, where now that we are in a higher oil price cycle, Companies are going back and they're saying, hey, we've got these wells that, that that weren't economic at $50 oil. They weren't economic at $65 oil, but at $80 oil, we do want to bring them online. So so as they bring them online, they're finding ways to create efficiencies of scale on these. But that being said, there's there's just something to be said that when I used to operate in the field, there there used to be times where we had bypasses built into every single automation uh, thing out there because there was just times you had to shut off the nannies and go and and put a pipe wrench in your hand and and get the work done so uh they they're good they work they add to the ease of operations but at the same time you can't you can't fully or even i would say 50 percent uh make up for for the real experience maybe that that gets fixed over time i guess we'll find out but uh, yeah so far they've been doing a good job there's some really good technologies and software actually that's that's now out there uh, but when I look at AI, when I look at machine learning and uh, some of the automation, a lot of that has has come in on the engineering side of things where where people are running evaluation models and reservoir simulations and, and drilling simulations that are way better than they used to be. On a field side, you still need that real individual out there. And the more experienced, the better. Sometimes the, the wells that are out there to these operators are like their babies and they know them inside out, how they respond. Each well is different, uh, just like each kid is different and, and they behave in different ways. So you mentioned that we're in this high oil price cycle and I tend to push back on narratives that could have been said at any point in time over the last several years, right? So a lot of the and by the way, it's not me disagreeing with the the idea, but just to create some conversation. You know, a lot of the things I hear about the idea that oil is in a secular bull market, you know, you could take people's uh, reasonings, word for word analysis, and apply it to June of last year, which is around the time that oil had peaked. And obviously, you've gone down quite a bit since that oil peak. Has anything changed in the narrative around the bull cycle, whether it's in terms of the intensity, the demand? We'll talk about China reopening, but I want to kind of get to the, the question of, is the narrative already discounted? We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. 
visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, great point. And one that, that I think I get the most often. So just, just to provide a bit of context, when you go back and people say oil is a cyclical market, they're, they're referring to these five to seven year cycles where, where oil will go up, it'll stay there, and then it'll come down for, for an extended three to four year period, maybe five year period. The reason we had those cycles is because of conventional oil. So when I say conventional oil, I'm talking about non-shale, non-oil sands based oil. These projects are such that, okay, we've discovered the oil. We're now going to decide to FID, do a final a final investment decision. And it's going to take about two to three to four years for this oil to come online to its peak production. So what happened is, is the projects would, would be FID'd when the oil price first spiked in the first six to 12 months. They would, they would go in, they would build out these vessels or these offshore platforms or the oil sands platforms or, or whatnot. And in three to four years, all this production would come on all at once. And then you had this extended down cycle because you've, you've oversupplied the market now. In the down cycle, people would not invest in these, in these sorts of projects. And three to four years would go by when all that extra supply w- would get absorbed by the market. Given that global demand has been growing at about one to one and a half percent for, for pretty much since oil was started, uh, started being used. So the market would absorb that supply. And three to four years later, you would have, again, a undersupply in the market. And we would continue on like that, on and on. It's been going on like this for, for multiple decades. What changed in 2013, 2014 was the advent of our, our hydraulically fractured shale production. And what's different with shale production is it comes on right away. If I decide to drill a well today, I could have it online in two to three months at these really, really high peak rates. But then it declines at 70, 80, 85% in year one. And then you're you're on this constant treadmill where you just have to keep drilling and keep drilling to keep that production online. Now, the U.S. Permian was so prolific, it's such a prolific acreage that they were able to increase production at massive rates, much more, you could say, economic than conventional oil, but but not really. When you look at the fact that they blew through $300 billion of capital in the down cycle, they just, they just had a mandate to increase production. That's how management got paid and, and they oversupplied the market. But what's happened in that meantime is the conventional, your typical conventional oil cycle that would have happened never happened. Nobody invested in conventional oil from 2014 onwards. And in the meantime, now shale is topping out. So we got the Permian at, at five, five and a half million barrels per day. They're unable to grow anymore now. And the mindset has changed. The, the other conventional oil investors are saying, hey, we, we don't want to invest now. We're just going to pay back debt. We're going to come in here. We're going to buy back our shares. We're going to pay dividends. We have no reason to invest in our limited remaining resource until prices are much higher. And at the same time, shale is not there to cover that, that drawdown or undersupply wedge of that million barrels per day as time goes on. The one thing that could have fixed that is in 2022, we saw the rig count going up in, in the U.S. We saw some production from Canada. We saw some projects being FID'd. But then with the Biden administration, when they released the SPR, which they've done a fabulous job at controlling inflation with that, they've, they've done a fabulous job controlling gasoline price, but they've put a further nail in the coffin of your conventional oil cycle. And so what we see is despite oil price being you know, $40 a barrel below where it was in June, you haven't fixed the problem. You haven't invested in supply, and that supply, when you do invest in that, is going to take, as I said, three to four years to come online, and that's what makes this cycle so, so intriguing, is that not only do we not have the geology to really do that, but the mindset has shifted, 
terms of the investment at the same time that shale itself can't come to the rescue uh, once again. And when the conventional oil cycle individuals or companies do decide to invest, now there's a gap there. there. There's a three to four year period where oil prices are going to stay high. And we're investing at a time that the cash flow multiples are, are at record, record lows, giving you that downside protection, which is not usually the case uh, in oil and gas equities uh, moving forward. Where are we? I haven't tracked this recently, but on, on the SPR, on, on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve side, yeah, that's a line that I've, I've heard quite a bit, right? There's there's the uh, an effective short squeeze, right? Uh, because that's effectively what the Biden administration has done, right? By releasing all this supply. How big is the gap in terms of what they need to refill it to? Um, and what's actually been happening on on doing that? Uh, you know, you can only manipulate so long as you have inventory. Yeah, and that's one of the other other really, really good points is that when you have a under-supplied a structural bull cycle, what fixes it is more supply. And, and supply can come in two ways, whether it's production or inventory. And in 2022, the SPR did the job. It, it came in as a supply by draining that inventory. But for the bulls here in the room, it gives us more firepower, exactly as you said. is It's no longer on the table in the amount that it was in 2022 to come to the rescue. And so it's about 369 million barrels right now, the SPR. There's a 26 million barrel release going on as we speak. These are congressionally mandated releases that were mandated uh, a long time ago. The SPR is is not going to be refilled. The Since about five, six, seven years ago, all these sales have already been congressionally mandated. They wanted a lower a number of barrels stored in the SPR, just given the changing dynamics of U.S. oil production and global oil, oil uh, supply demand. They did not want to hold all this oil in storage. And they took the advantage. They took oil that they bought at $20, $25 a barrel, and they sold it at $90 to $110 a barrel. Really, really good. And I don't think that's going to change here. There, There's no reason for them to refill the SPR here. I think people who are using that as a bullish case uh, are being misled as to what the administration is going to do. Sure, they might refill it to some token amount uh, here and there, but the SPR was always going to be uh, at a lower level throughout this decade. They were going to release 25 to 35 million barrels every single year. And then once we got to 2030, we would have ended up at this 340-ish million barrel mark anyway. So what the DOE did and what the U.S. government did is, is they replaced some of the sales that were done last year with some of these forward congressionally mandated sales. So they just accelerated those sales into 2022. And moving forward, there's no any sort of law or any sort of need that the U.S. government feels that they need to refill this. A lot of this is just pontification and job owning, trying to control the market here uh, at a time when when they feel they can. And they and they missed a shot here when when two or three weeks ago, they could have bought oil possibly and supported the market. They decided not to. And, and then OPEC uh, decided to kind of step in. And here we are now. So I would not use the SPR as a bullish case. What the bullish case here is, is that the SPR no longer has that 250 million barrels that could have been used in a supply shortage to further extend out the, the call it lower for longer period. The U.S. government no longer has that at a time when the world no longer has that excess inventory, which really sets the stage for when prices do, do get higher and we get into physical supply shortage, there's less and less bullets out there for the world to use in order to control that. And, and we really need to focus on where is the supply going to come from to fix that, and once again, I keep repeating this point, but that's what makes, in my opinion, the bull case so strong is that we don't have the supply in short order to bring online to solve it at a moment's notice like we did in 2014 when shale came on the scene and absolutely clobbered the market with millions of barrels of production uh, over a four to five year period. Yeah, and I, th I think this kind of goes to just 
a sort of a broader discussion around timeframes. They're not going to want to uh, refill the SPR and potentially put upward pressure on uh, oil if, you know, not if we're in a pre-election year, right? And in order to in order to get voters to vote, you know, in the states, people tend to vote based on nominal. They'll vote based on the price of gas. They'll vote based on energy costs in general. So there's no incentive, at least in the near term, until the election is over, to do anything about it anyway, right? As far as refilling it, so sounds to me like that's sort of a, a broader underpinning. And I, I'm with you on that point. You know, the effect of all this is that you've you've effectively removed the insurance policy of the added inventory. So if you have another shock, some other war that comes up, or something else, there's no one or there's no entity that can really counter it as effectively. Let's talk about some of the things that OPEC has done more recently. Uh, OPEC, OPEC Plus. How do those dynamics play into the broader sort of bull thesis? We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Yeah, this is one that's that's more so to me a, a a question of the mindset. So so if we go back to the last 10 years, what OPEC has been trying to do, especially what Saudi Arabia has been trying to do, is kill shale. They've been trying to destroy the economics so that they don't lose market share to US shale because it is it is a real problem for them. They the Saudi Arabian fields, they started producing in the 60s and the 70s. They peaked in the early 2000s. They stayed there for 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 a few years and now they're in in what we call a terminal decline phase. Uh, on the Hubbard's curve. So every single year now, we're going to see constant declines. This has been proven to some extent by the Aramco IPO, where they release the numbers on what their major fields are producing. And so they don't they don't want to produce this oil now that it's in terminal decline at a lower price. They want a higher price for it. They want to maintain market share so that they can have that higher price for it. When shale came on the scene, it, it just came in. They did not care about economics. They just produced as much production growth as they could do and so what the Saudis did was was increase production. They increased production, tried to kill shale, but what they did not realize was, was shale didn't care. It was not a game of economics or, or profitability. It was a game strictly on production growth, backed by some sort of energy independence mindset in the U.S. And now what, what OPEC is doing and what they did in 2020 and what they did with their very slow, gradual removal of the cuts and now the re-implementation of the cuts is what they're telling you is, we're not worried about shale. You know, go ahead, blow your brains out. Even at 75, 80, 85 dollar oil, they know shale can't increase. And if shale can increase, well, it's going to not increase by a million barrels per day. It's going to increase by 200,000, 300,000, and all that takes away from fu- from future inventory. When you look at shale, it's not that we just got to this level of production and we're going to stay there. You you have to keep that treadmill going, and there's only so much inventory that shale, especially the Permian has to keep that going. And the Saudis and OPEC has the best data on that. They know exactly what's going on. They own refineries in the US. They have uh, uh, other, call it sources within almost all of these oil companies that are telling them exactly what's happening. And they're not worried. They say, okay, we're we're just going to cut production. We're going to, for the limited barrels we have left for the next few decades, we're just going to have the highest price possible. And at the same time, we need the oil price high enough to justify 
other countries spending on investment. So they don't want the price high just to make money. They want it high enough such that the world actually spends on new CapEx, new projects, new exploration, so that we don't have these massive spikes two to three years down the road where we end up in a in a multi-million barrel per day undersupply with with no way to solve it. So the it's uh it's kind of an interesting way to think about it. Not a lot of people will will agree with it possibly, but OPEC is looking out for the overall stability of the oil market. They've always done that. And the way to do that these days is to have a high, high enough price that justifies CapEx coming back into the market and, and really investing in projects that we need to invest in moving forward. And, and one other point I want to make on OPEC is OPEC has never been as cohesive as it is now. In the past, you had this 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 game being played where where certain countries would go in and increase production despite there being mandated quotas. There'd be countries selling oil illegally on the side, trying to ship it from from random ports here and there. But when you look at 2020, when OPEC made that cut, every single country, including the ones like UAE with with actual spare capacity, have stuck to that quota. They haven't talked back. They haven't made any statements in the public market saying, well, we don't agree with this or we want to overproduce. There's been nothing of that sort. And that for an oil investor is really icing on the cake because they're telling you, hey, you know, we're we're not going to allow oil prices to stay down for an extended period of time, which is really what a lot of investors want to avoid is is that extended drawdown for a year or two that really impacts the oil companies and their cash flows. And if we don't have that uh, and we've got OPEC supporting us, that's an even even better kind of floor to have. I don't know what exactly the floor price is, but OPEC seems to want to uh, far away when people are least expecting it, which is uh, almost a good sign here uh, moving forward as the cycle continues. What's the source of that cohesiveness? Is it a function of pushing back against dollar dominance, reserve currency status? I mean, I have to assume that there's a lot of kind of backroom discussions that uh, are basically ways of trying to counter U.S. dominance in general. Yeah, I think there's there's a few sources of it. The the one that is most obvious would be that each of these Middle Eastern Gulf countries have a very young population with very high unemployment rates. Uh, however, they they do subsidize their internal, I call it government structure and and public structure there. So after five to six to seven years of extended drawdown in oil price, their reserves are running low, their coffers are running low, and they have this this growth that they want to do. They want all these projects they got to do. So they realize, look, there's no point in trying to mess around here and and having internal conflicts, having internal civil wars because they weren't able to support uh, their internal their internal public policy and the and the initiatives that they want to do. So they each realize that they're all basically in the same position. When you look at Kuwait, Saudi, UAE, Iran, Iraq, they they all have this this massive young population base that wants now to modernize, that wants to consume, and the way to do that is is through their oil revenues. So after after many years of playing this game of trying to be the one that produces the most they're they're finally fed up and they're saying look none of us are winning here it's it's nobody's won including shale shale has lost money and all of the gulf countries have not made as much money as they could have uh, during that time frame so there's this this overall cohesiveness i don't think it's it's necessarily anything to do with with dollar dominance uh, but at the same time th- there is underlying issues there where where the gulf countries do want to have more control uh, over what's happening, especially because uh, neither the Trump administration nor the Biden administration has been all that much friendly uh, in terms of keeping oil prices high, which really is a major source of revenue for these Gulf countries. So given that backdrop, and at the same time, you have rising inflation everywhere, a lot of these Gulf countries are importing their food needs. So they need a higher price anyway, just to justify the main level of public subsidization that they're doing. 
along with obviously the growth in these countries. You're seeing seven, eight, ten percent GDP growth. You're seeing consumption growth uh, year over year, five, six, seven, eight percent. And they need to make sure that they that they control that because uh, you got a population that if they don't have food and if they don't have fuel, uh, could get heated up in in quite a hurry. So I think that that really is the main goal there, along with them realizing that if they're going to invest in capex. If they're going to invest in new projects for the next few decades, they need a higher oil price so that other uh, other countries in the world are also helping them out rather than them just depleting their reserves. And then the rest of the world, like Canada and Venezuela, are just sitting on these reserves that they can then produce at a higher oil price a further few decades down the road. Just to reset the room for everybody that's here, please uh, make sure you follow uh, Shabham Garg here on Twitter. If you're interested in learning more about what he does, obviously, you can check out his website. He's got a number of articles uh, there as well. So I want to go back to sort of the progression to being an investor for you. You were in the field. You're an engineer, smart, you know, figuring out all these interesting nuances, doing things that people behind a computer screen would have no idea about unless they physically got out and were in the field. How do you go from that to investing in the public markets? Because you and I both know you can really know an industry inside and out fundamentally. You can have all of the most thoughtful analysis in the world, but price will move off of things that have nothing to do with one's uh, fundamental outlook. Yeah, for sure. So, so I actually got started in, in investing in the public markets in a in a smaller way uh, in 2013 when I when I first started my petroleum engineering um, at the University of Alberta. I was really involved with a lot of the companies there. A lot of the individuals who were in our programs uh, would have gone and done co-op terms at some of these companies. They would explain, okay, this is how this company operates. This is how this company operates. I then did my own co-op terms. All, all of them in the field where I, where I would work. And I would really try to understand, okay, what, what makes these companies tick? What, what makes them different? And why are they good investment candidates? And, and really the, the one major uh, overall theme that I got was people have gotten filthy rich over oil and all they had to do was be right on timing one cycle. That's it. As, as long as you can time one of these cycles, you can go to uh, 2008, you can go to 2014 to see the downdraft of that. You can go to 2000. You can make insane amounts of money over a very short periods of time in companies that are that are relatively well valued. So you buy a growth company at, at six to eight times cash flow. It grows through the cycle from 2000 to, to, to 2007. They grow production, they grow their business. And the oil and gas price also helps out, obviously, in that. And you end up with a 50 to 100 beggar. And then you take that money, you can compound it into different names as the cycle continues. So there's this there's overall way to kind of get yourself out of that nine to five per se by just being right once. So so I've always had that in my mind. And of course, when I did my petroleum engineering, I said, okay, well, oil and gas, this is what I know. So so I'm gonna stick to what I know and invest in this. And you know, kept following the markets. Obviously, 2015 to 2019 weren't weren't that great. Nothing really happened in those four to five years. It was it was just a flat line to a slow uh, drawdown. Investor apathy came in. People started getting PTSD. A lot of PE type investments got stuck in these in these funds where, where they had no exit liquidity. There was no way to, to sell at anywhere close to what the initial amount of money was put in. People started getting jaded. There was this defeatism that happened in, in sort of the Calgary area. But but I was tracking supply demand the entire time. I would I would follow the EI reports. I would look at what companies were doing. I would look at the overall uh, scope of the market. We had a this this thesis that that shale was not going to continue on forever, but it did. It kept going. 2015, 2016, 17. In 2018, it grew by two million barrels per day. And then in 2019, late 2019, we finally saw 
okay, there, there's this flatlining in U.S. production that's happening, and we're seeing this this change in cusp of of sort of the 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 beginning of the bull cycle. Valuations were still pretty high at that point, but but it made a good investment case at that point. So so I did go in a little bit higher, uh, harder, let's say in in late 2019. And then COVID happened. And when COVID happened, we saw some of these oil companies drop 20, 30, 40% in a day. And that was my my big sign because when it when an incident like COVID happens, it's it, it's not that it happens in a vacuum. It happens such that you have now permanently impacted the supply curve going forward. And and meanwhile, the demand in the world has never really changed. When you have a recession like 08, yes, global oil demand came down, but when you go into 09, 2010, 2011, not only did global oil demand rebound to its usual one to one and a half percent growth, it actually made up for that loss in 2008, along with the growth that would have happened in 08 if the recession didn't happen. So there's there's this fundamental backing to to the global what I call thirst for energy uh, in the oil market. So went really really <laughs> hardcore in in 2020, as I'm sure many people did. But really, the the oil and gas valuations at that point made sense kind of played that throughout the cycle. And, and then, you know, when I, when I felt confident enough, I said, okay, well, I'm just going to go ahead and, and bet on myself and do my own thing here because there's a natural void in the market. There's, there's a triple, what I call the triple threat. There's very few individuals out there who have an engineering background, who have worked in the field and who have that financial sort of uh, uh, desire to go and value these companies from, from that standpoint. So, I looked at that void and I said, okay, let me let me target this void as as just a hobby to begin with. And it eventually became kind of what it is now. And and what I see now is, you know, for some of the individuals in this room, it's it's kind of uh, very interesting because in a usual oil cycle, you would make 10, 20x if you just invest in the blue chips and kind of go on. And what's happened is because of COVID, we had a 10 to 20x resurgence back to normal in our portfolios. And now that the real cycle is beginning as we speak, you now have this opportunity to use that money and invest in various other companies and still partake in another, uh, call it 10 to 20x as the cycle goes on, especially if people are are willing to look at some of the, uh, call it junior companies that are trading at, at, like I said, extremely distressed valuations. And even the blue chips and the small, small to mid caps are trading at, call it 50 to 75% discounts to what they were in 2010 to 2014. So, so when I look at all that, and an overall expected value model, whether you want to run a risk reward model, it just makes sense to me that that this is a place to be. And uh, yeah, for me, if I can move down market and 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 have a little bit extra torque with with not having that, uh, call it downside risk, uh, it's an even better place to be. So that's kind of the model going forward. And I would say for anybody in the room that's that's invested in this, the biggest thing to avoid is being on the cliff on the other side whenever the oil cycle does end. I'm not saying it's imminent. I'm not saying it's going to happen right away. But really, that's where a lot of people lose the money that they've made because they get overconfident. So so for us in the room that are in this Twitter uh, community, that's one of the things we really focus on is, is really tracking where the supply is coming from and make sure we're not uh, caught up in that because that's that's what leads to the PTSD and the jadedness in future cycles, despite the fact that every single oil cycle has pretty much played out the same way with with certain people making generation multi-generational wealth by doing literally nothing just just buying these companies sitting on them um and kind of just 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 hanging in there with patience and just to make one more point here in previous oil cycles if somebody was buying equities in 09 2010 2011 
you're paying 8, 10, 12 times cash flow. These days, we're paying two to four times cash flow. And that has a, has a double positive in that not only do we get extra torque on the upside when we invest in these names, but also you have a downside protection. When oil prices have dropped now from, as you mentioned, from 120 to 80 to 75 in the last six to nine months, some of the equities barely moved. Some of the equities today are at 52-week highs, even though the price of oil is $40 below where it was. And that's because that multiple is so low that the downside risk we're taking on on some of these, call it debt-free companies that are paying 8 9 10% dividends, is a lot easier to take on that risk when I'm taking on the risk at three times cash flow as opposed to 10 times cash flow. And the same applies to the companies. The companies making acquisitions at three times cash flow, I would support that all day long. Companies that go out as the cycle continues and make acquisitions at eight, 10, 12 times cash flow, that's the way they get hurt. And that's why companies in 2010 to 14 had this massive drawdown when 2015 finally hit. You mentioned it, Jeff, uh, uh, the point about cycles ending. I, I'm a big proponent of cycles. I use that line many times over. It's no gurus, only cycles. Everything's ultimately about the broader conditions that favor a particular thesis. The challenge with cycles, of course, is that it's hard to know when one starts and one stops, right? except with hindsight. And usually by the time you recognize you're in a new cycle, it's probably two to three years after the cycle's already started. By the time you realize the cycle's over, it's probably long over. Talk about some of the markers for you. What would be tells that would suggest that the cycle is going to be uh, weak for oil and gas. It's got to be more than just the argument that it takes three to four years for some of the stuff, some of these projects to come online. What would be the things for you that would be a warning sign? Yeah, it's a very, very interesting question because I, I, I agree with you on a lot of that, but but I also see the cycle a little bit different uh, from, an, from an investment standpoint. So so when I look at an oil and gas cycle, uh, and I look at my call it, and and I know we're we're very very early yet, but but when we talk about exit strategies, the cycle doesn't necessarily have to end for me to exit my positions. So if I can see right now, let's say companies are trading at twenty thirty percent free cash flow yields, if that free cash flow yield on the multiple re rates to a twelve and a half percent free cash flow yield is what I use, so an eight times free cash flow model at a oil price somewhere north of hundred dollars a barrel. I will exit the trade. It, it it doesn't necessarily mean that the cycle has ended. The cycle could continue going on higher and higher. But from a risk reward standpoint, if you're buying companies at eight times free cash flow in a hundred plus dollar oil world, uh, you you are taking on a lot more risk than than buying something at uh, three times free cash flow or four times free cash flow. So I think investors need to really focus on this in the commodity world. Is that is that we got to pay attention to the cycle. But within the cycle, you have to pay attention to the multiples that are that are being uh, that these companies start to trade at. So, one of the things that I look at on on the former part of that on on the overall cycle is is supply. So the nice thing about conventional oil is, yes, we can say there's a three to four year period that these uh, these big oil projects are going to come online. But the nice thing is you can see all of this. So so I can go and look up all the Canadian oil sands companies. I can read into them quarter by quarter see when they're FIDing their projects, track those projects as time goes on. I can look at any offshore project that's being done in Guyana. ExxonMobil has a game plan till 2027. We can look at Petrobras in Brazil. We can look at uh, any, any major source of production, the, the Saudi Arabian onshore fields, the UAE offshore fields. You can build your own model of where global production excess or, or additions is going to be over the next few years. Then you run a terminal decline curve on, on where we are right now. And you can build your own supply-demand model 
using a a base one to one uh one to one point five percent growth in that moving forward, and you can see when the inflection point exactly is going to be, and then you just track that at as the months go by, as the as the years go by, as the quarters go by, we get almost monthly data on global oil demand uh, versus supply. We can do that by tracking inventories. Inventories is your savings account, the difference between oil supply and oil demand. When that when that overall inventory drawdown goes from, from what we would call a structurally undersupplied market, so more than 1 million barrel per day drawdown uh, over an extended period of time, when that starts contracting and contracting, we don't necessarily need the market to be oversupplied in order for the oil prices to start dropping. If that marginal barrel on the end of the last barrel you've sold starts to get not bid upon, you will see a general decline uh, in the price of oil before you, you, you enter an, an oversupplied market. So that's the one way to track the overall markets. I also think as oil investors, we, we may not believe in EVs. We may see problems with, with renewables. Yes, there are problems with, with both of those, but they are displacing oil demand growth. So if you see uh, countries in Europe, countries like the US, countries like China, start really pushing uh, electric vehicles with subsidies, and there's a real impact on that demand growth wedge, really, really need to watch for that. This is the first time in history that these things are being pushed to this extent uh, moving forward. So so for me to say, hey, oil demand has always grown one to one and a half percent. Yes, it has, but we can't just take that for granted. So, So I think we really, really need to be careful as to how we see this going forward. Keep an eye on the data. I, I spend a lot of time these days less so focused on the day-to-day movements of the equities, the day-to-day uh, movements in the oil price. I'm more so focused on which projects are being FID'd, where is the supply going, which countries are pushing a legislation that goes into EVs and renewables, and, and the major macro factors, because that's really what's going to matter and then on the latter half of what I said, just watch the multiples. When when companies start trading at 10 times cash flow, when they start trading at eight times free cash flow, that's that's really your warning sign for two reasons. One is that you're now taking on a lot more downside risk in your investment. And also, when historically you look at what's happened in the past, when the companies re-rate to those sorts of multiples is when they stop paying dividends, they stop doing buybacks, and and now they want to invest into CapEx. They want to go and and do more projects with the free cash flow they're making. They're like, oh, we're trading at 10 times free cash flow. It doesn't make sense for us to to keep buying our shares. So we're just going to go in and and use that money for for production, new projects, et cetera. So so it's a double whammy effect that happens once these companies uh, re-rate. And really, really important for us to watch for that because there are co- certain companies that are getting close to that. Uh, companies like ExxonMobil, for example, uh, and they have they make more cash at a higher oil price. And what are they going to do with that? They're they're not going to pay a a fourteen or eighteen percent dividend. It doesn't really make sense. So they're going to go and jam it into acquisitions or into capex. And when that capex starts to spike, uh, is your is your warning sign that hey, you got about three to four years here, and you now really need to start watching as to the. Uh, supply demand fundamentals going forward. Yeah, you bet. So, so along with the 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 supply thesis that is at the at the underpinning of of the overall structural bull thesis, we we also have what I would say is a is an emerging demand thesis. So, when you look at the oil price from let's say two thousand to oh eight or or even till twenty fourteen, and you just run a curve on that 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 pricing increase is is now a sustained increase. In your base level pricing, oil price in 2000 was about $20 a barrel. We now can't even dream of $20 a barrel. That's that's not going to happen again 
And a large part of that is obviously on the supply side, it's just gotten tougher to find the oil and develop the oil, et cetera. But also the, the demand side, you had China with its 1.4 billion people grow their oil consumption by two, three, four, 500,000 barrels every single year from there onwards. And they, they seem to be continuing that growth despite kind of what, what the overall narrative seems to be. Their, their petroleum consumption growth still continues at that three to 500,000 barrels per day uh, every single year. They maintain that, uh, believe it or not, during COVID as well. So they grow that exact number, 2020, uh, 2021, and then 2022 was a slowdown, but they still grew it in 2020 and 2021 when other countries didn't. Now where we are today in 2023, we have that, that, that China growth story happening not just in China, but in other parts of the world. They are now on the cusp of the S-curve where you you got people in India going from driving or riding bicycles to now driving motorcycles. You got people instead of burning and cooking on fires, they're now using LPG uh, cylinders. And there's an infinite increase in your petroleum demand when that happens. And guess what? Instead of 1.4 billion people that China had at that time, now it's India, it's Vietnam, it's uh, Nigeria, it is the the lower middle class in Indonesia, in Malaysia, in the Philippines. And we're talking two and a half to three billion people now that are on the cusp of that. And guess what? They now have the internet. They have mobile phones. They have the overall uh, TV. They want what the Western world has a lot faster than what China had in 2000. So so that is your underpinning on the overall demand. We, we cannot just look at U.S. and European demand where it's flatlined. Yes, it's for the most part kind of there. But you mentioned transportation fuels. So, so in 2000, about 60-ish percent, 65% of the transportation fuel demand came from OECD countries. Today, that's about 45%. So as, as we keep going on, the, the emerging markets and their large populations are kind of underpinning the overall demand growth despite increases in price, despite increases in, in the dollar and, and et cetera. And the reason for that comes down to core science which is that petroleum is so damn efficient. You can have one tractor with its with its diesel cost take up 20, 30, 40 laborers that are out there farming. You got you got efficiencies of scale when you do that. Uh, and you're just able to do stuff a lot faster and a lot lot more efficiently and better. You're not trusting people to show up to work. You you have one guy running that tractor, gets a job done. And countries are now realizing that that hey, you know, we we just need that and we can grow our GDPs at 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 very, very high rates at a price that, that they're willing to pay. They don't mind paying 100, 120, $140 a barrel because the, the, net, the net gain for them is maybe worth four, five, $600 a barrel, which makes that demand inelastic to, to the price of oil, to the dollar uh, moving forward. The, the second point you made as a geopolitics. So this is a, another point that I feel the world has gotten very apathetic about. They've gotten lulled into this false sense of confidence that we have energy abundance Everything's going to be right with the world, and we just have everything. Well, when you look at the 2010 to 14 cycle, we had the Arab Spring event happen. When when oil prices rise, there's more at stake. There's more civil wars. There's more parties interested in getting a piece of that pie. They want to take over your operations, and they'll do that using violence and and whatever is required. So in 2010 to 14, you had Yemen completely fall off. They lost more than 500,000 barrels, I want to say, of production permanently, it seems like, until maybe... A couple months ago here, we had Syria lose a, a major part of its oil production. So there is more violence when, when oil prices are higher, especially in the Gulf countries. And, and, and this is going to be a very interesting dynamic this time around, because it seems like Saudi is, is willing to come in here, play the peacemaker, and really keep things, keep things under, 
uh, under check, but but that's no easy task in the Middle East uh, by any means. So so this is the one thing to really watch for is is as oil prices rise, is there going to be permanent supply disruptions that the world has not baked in? Iraq has been down 400,000 barrels per day for the last two to three weeks. Uh, Libya was down multiple times in 2010 to 14. And even as 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 early as 2021, they were down three, 400,000 barrels a day. So these things can can further fuel the the wedge difference between supply and demand and something that the world just just does not care about because they still feel that hey shale can just grow a million barrels per day if if something happens in xyz part of the world shale will just grow a million barrels per day and i think that that sort of thinking is why there is literally no geopolitical premium in the price of oil today and and that's going to be very interesting to see when that comes back and to what extent that comes back in a world that's uh, that that's more and more call it addicted to to energy demand moving forward. Yeah, I think you you hit the point on the head. It's it's very, very difficult to 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 predict what happens 10 or 20 years out. Um, doesn't really fit the the investment uh, sort of mandate either way. But but as a discussion point, it it's kind of interesting because I think I think the the whole EV thing is is very interestingly marketed. Electric vehicles and renewables were always going to have a huge growth period right off the fact, especially when they're supported with subsidies, especially in the Western world, because there's there's easy places in the desert to put solar farms. There, there, there's easy, rich people to target to get these EVs out on the out on the market. But there's a saturation point there that that hasn't quite been hit. But once it's hit, you'll see this this like very, very quick flatlining in the penetration rate of renewables. You'll see a very, very quick uh, flatlining rate in the penetration of EVs. Right now, EVs in California, they get they get free supercharging at many places. They get to use the carpool lanes. They're not paying the gasoline, the, the egregious gasoline taxes that they have here uh, that, that take over the, the road maintenance and all that. So it's a very easy case to make at this point in time. But as time goes on, these things will, I think, get more expensive as opposed to less expensive because we don't, A, we don't have the battery metals to do this uh, on the scales that you're describing. In a country like like India, you got them selling at this point three to four million vehicles a year. Okay, about 5% are EVs. In China, you got them selling 25 million vehicles a year and about 30% now are EVs. But but as that number grows in these growing populations, it becomes harder and harder to, to support that, not only from an infrastructure standpoint, but from an actual subsidized subsidized standpoint uh, from the government's revenues. So really, you know, 10 years down the road, we, I think, will have higher oil demand and we, I think, will have a a spot where where some of the EV graphs, uh, they will have to start explaining them because it's going to have this this rampant rise, exponential rate, then it's going to curve out the other way and then start flatlining as you see that, hey, people can't really afford to buy these these sorts of vehicles, especially when you tell them, hey, you actually can't use the carpoolings anymore and you got to pay 20 cents a mile on, on every mile you use because your battery is so heavy that it's screwing up the roads. And by the way, you can't park on these multi-level parkades because your battery is so heavy, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, at the same time that that the world will be competing for those battery metals, China included, which has a lion's share uh, of the manufacturing and the processing and, and the rare earths uh, and some of the metals that go into that anyway. So short answer is... I would expect that you could have EV rates of 20, 30, 40% of new sales. You could have EV uh, overall in the market in 10 years, 12 to 15%, and oil demand will still be higher just because of the sheer population and the amount of uh, uh, petroleum needed to support that growth in some of these uh, emerging markets. Energy is not a risk-off play. I don't care what anybody says. It's just not. 
and I say that from a pure backtesting perspective. Maybe it's going to be going forward, but if you're going to rely on the idea of risk off playing on high volatility, yeah, sure, oil can be a source of high volatility, but it only can last for so long, as we saw last year, because you still had risk off, but obviously oil kind of, uh, you know, had a very different return pattern. But that's that's a trading dynamic that's different from an investment thesis, right? I've been very public on the idea that I am down with all these arguments around the energy, oil, and gas space. I'm not down with the overconfidence, which is why I said in early June I thought oil probably peaked. But that's a that's something that's overconfidence is not something that's unique to oil and gas. That's that's something that's just a dynamic when it comes to oil investors. So for me, it's more about the interaction, as I keep saying, not about an investment thesis. But I do, uh, uh, Shabhab, want to go to your you on this real quick for the remaining minute or two. You've got your portfolio. You're doing a lot of Canadian stocks. How do you think about? Waiting timeframes, what makes you reallocate? Uh, fundamentals always lag price, right? So are you doing anything based on technicals? Are you are you actively rotating or actively overweighting or underweighting? Any kind of uh, insight there would be helpful. Yeah, um, so so the way that I look at it, I mean, I, I look for the best expected value or the risk reward. I'm not I'm not here trying to have the least risk. I'm not here trying to hit hit the most highest value kind of name out there. I, I look for the best risk reward, the one with the best downside protection and the most upside to capture. And right now, it's it's in my opinion in the Canadian small to mid caps, the trade at a lower multiples and some of their blue chip counterparts. They have really really good inventory quality, uh, especially in Canada with with their lower decline rates. And some of the better acreage, uh, keep in mind, the U.S. has has mostly been hit with conventional oil because uh, it's just generally cheaper to operate there. So given that we're in Canada, there's, there is companies sitting out there with, with millions of barrels of hundreds of millions of barrels of oil in place that have not been hit with the new technologies. And I think that's where really the edge in commodity investing is, especially if you come from a technical background, you can identify acreages that that have this upside built in where I don't need to take on exploration risk. I can buy these companies two to three times cash flow really good net asset values, really good reserve lives, really good undeveloped land. Some of them have tax pools for two to three to four years, such that they're not going to be paying corporate income tax for that time frame. And they're buying back their shares while they're cheap. So, so you have a natural price support they're built in. So I've got, I've got five names in my top five that cover about 60 to 70% of my portfolio. And then I've got 30% in the high flying junior names. And I, I don't just buy them all. I buy ones that are, that specifically have the asset upside it's all baked based out of fundamentals and and the actual acreage. And then I do the free cash flow analysis and the net asset value analysis on top of that. But I love plays that have this undeveloped uh, sort of technical upside, which uh, very, very few individuals either understand or, or care to look into to that level in terms of uh, uh, allocating their dollars into that. So that's where I think oil and gas has the edge, where, where you have a real edge. You're not playing roulette in the markets, buying random things based on what the quarter, uh, quarterly results or the earnings are going to be. You have an actual edge, especially if you're willing to invest over cycle, a three to five year or two to five year cycle, that value will get brought out over time because they just generally have better acreage than their peers. Uh, so they're going to drill better wells with lower decline rates, better cash flows, better uh, IRRs, better NPVs. And over time, that's really where you get the compounding return that I mentioned earlier on in the call. I think that's a, uh, that's a good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Thank you, everybody, for joining. Uh, again, please make sure you follow uh, Shubham Garg on Twitter here. Thank you, Shubham. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice.
the views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at LeadLag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the LeadLag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.